Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy. I invite you to join me as we explore what it looks like to choose joy in the messy middle while embracing the inspiration, intention, and action that you can take to find joy in your every day. This is your host, Paula Jenkins. Welcome to episode 268 here on Jumpstart Your Joy. This week on the show, I'm really excited to have the very first interview of season six, and I'm delighted to bring Dr. Jeff Spies on. He's the author of the brand new book, Dying with Ease, a compassionate guide for making wiser end of life decisions. And I just love this conversation so much. I cannot wait to get to it. Jeff Spies has retired as the Associate Medical Director of Hospice of the Western Reserve, and he spent most of his medical career caring for those facing serious illness and death, first as an oncologist, then as a hospital physician, and he's really been recognized as a leader in his field. Now, I really love that he and I get to talk about the joy that you can find in accepting our own death, and that's the end of our journey here, and how we can approach death and dying for those people around us when those times come. The other thing that weaves through this conversation is this idea of really being present for people, especially in their time of grief or sorrow. This is just a really rich conversation that I feel so lucky to have had with such an amazing human. So I'm delighted to share this with you all. I know this can be a difficult and a very deep discussion. So I assure you, we do remain light and look for the hopeful side of things. Before we get to that interview, I want to wish you all a very warm welcome. I am so glad that you are here. I hope that you're enjoying this season, which is all about finding joy in the messy middle. And of course, Dr. Jeff Spies and I dive into that. I ask him the question about it and his answer, you guys, I'm just going to give you a little bit of it. It's so good. He talks about when you hit the messy middle, which is, of course, the place that feels hard and it's difficult to see what's working. It's, you know, you might really feel overwhelmed. And what he said is that what you need to lean into is basically your own relationships with yourself with the transcendent and with the other. Oh my goodness. I'm going to let him unpack that for you, but it was, oh, I can't believe his answer was so good to that question. Uh, If you're new to Jumpstart Your Joy, you can find out everything that you need to know about myself or the show at jumpstartyourjoy.com. And while you're there, you can also find show notes and that's the write-up and the full transcript of our conversation on the website. And that is at jumpstartyourjoy.com forward slash episode 268. While you're on the website, you can also sign up for my newsletter, which is Three Joyful Things. It comes out on Thursdays. It's a great way to get a little bit of an insight behind the scenes uh, about what I'm thinking about this week. And I share three joyful things each week that you can consider as well. It's a fun way to remain in touch. And uh, yeah, I'm also really excited because I am, like I said last week, working on my very own book about jumpstarting your joy in the messy middle. And I'm also, oh my goodness, another announcement, working on another podcast about podcasting. So I am excited to release both of those things before the end of the year. I hope you'll tune in and you can find out all about them if you sign up for the newsletter. That's the best place to find out all of that. So Really, without further ado, (laughs) let's jump into this delightful conversation with Dr. Jeff Spies. Welcome to the show, Dr. Spies. It's a delight to be here. 
Yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation. I know probably some listeners might be like dying in joy. Where are we in this? But I think this is going to be a lot of fun. The first question, though, that I ask everybody is, what were your earliest sparks of joy? What brought you the most joy as a child? You know, that's interesting because I knew you were going to ask that. And I looked back and my I don't see my childhood as particularly joyful. But this was good for me to um, think about things, that, that I found joy in learning new things. I found joy in encountering a new idea, a new way to think about something. I learned that I found joy in solitude. And maybe contemplation is not really what I was doing when I was out on the tractor on our farm, but just being present with the machine and the crops and the nature, I look back as a very joyful time. I like that. And thank you for being really honest in the answer. There's been a couple guests that have said you don't know. I thought it wasn't, I don't have a lot of joyful memories, but I think there's always something that we learn as a child that then connects through with what we do as an adult, which is also the other interesting part of that question. So thank you. Yeah. So you've done a lot of different work from what I understand. You went into oncology, is that right? As a doctor? Right. I did oncology first in a multi-specialty group practice in a smaller community, small college town in the Midwest. And Enjoyed it thoroughly, enjoyed it thoroughly. For me, taking care of patients through the end of their life was just part of the deal. I figured that's what I signed up for. I found out later that there's a lot of oncologists that don't feel that way, but that's okay. There was a local hospice organization. I got involved very early on, you know, volunteering as a medical director there, making home visits, and realized that encountering the people was what did it for me. Yeah, I liked curing people, but in the mid-80s, we didn't do that very often. But it was the encounters, it was the sharing their lives, it was the sharing their joys and their disappointments and their hopes and their families and the births and deaths and graduations and funerals that really did it for me. I became drawn more and more to hospice and palliative care at an opportunity in the first part of the 2000s to uh, jump back into the academic world and was on faculty at the University of Iowa and directed their inpatient palliative care program. I found out that the academic world and me didn't mix well. And from uh, 2005, then I became a full-time hospice medical director in Cleveland and retired a couple years ago from that. So that's the kind of the professional bio thing. Yeah. And that's super interesting. I mean, because a lot of the people that listen to the show, there's a lot of life coaches and other people that are in kind of the mental health place. So I think it is interesting to see how we, you know, caring for the physical part of people is important. And there's also a very different skill set and maybe a different draw to caring for them as a whole person, including their mental health. Absolutely. And that's, that really is the essence of good end-of-life care as a doc. Because, I mean, we think a lot about, so what is my job as a hospice doc? Well, my job as a hospice doc is to relieve symptoms and relieve suffering. And symptoms are the easy part because symptoms are pain medicine and oxygen and anti-nausea meds and things like that. Suffering is a whole person experience. It is a, yes, it might be related to physical symptoms, 
but suffering is related much more to emotion and to the spirit and to issues of fear and uncertainty. And yes, you got to be out of pain before you can do that work. But that work is the good stuff, you know, the being with. And that's, that gave me joy. I mean, that's, that's why I kept doing it. You know, people always say, well, you must be some wonderful, special person to do this. And I got sick of hearing that. Every hospice person gets sick of hearing that. For me, hell would be being a fifth grader. You know, that for me is, is like, well, that takes a, a special person. You do what you can do and what gives you fulfillment. Right. Well, and I get the sense, too, that there is some, maybe one of the through lines there is that as a child, even you could tune into that presence that you were talking about. And it would strike me only having studied pastoral care a very little bit, but like an end of life care piece is all about the presence. Once you're past that physical pain piece of really being there with someone, maybe is one of the biggest gifts and maybe one of the hardest things you could do. It is the essence of uh, good, of being with, whether you're somebody's daughter whether the patient's daughter, whether you're the spiritual caregiver, whether you're the nurse, perhaps a good example of that in hospice are the nursing assistants. They are often the most present because they're there giving a bath. They're there with the patient when the patient is at their most vulnerable. And so the, they get unbelievable I almost said exposure because that's that's not really the right word that I mean, but but yeah. insight into just what this person is going through. Because if you're dying and laying there naked in this room, you got nothing to hide. You can risk anything. And that is an amazing relationship. Yeah. And that is really beautiful. I've, I've seen a hospice person kind of in their elements as a family friend was passing. And right. it really... It's something really lovely to see someone be that present for another human. One of the things I think we should probably touch on is how as people, <laughs> I mean, I think for a really long time, I've been very aware and in tune with this idea that our journey has an end, right? But sometimes we want to turn away from that. I think, interestingly, I even pulled up the Tom Stoppard quote from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead about how there's only one, one direction and time is its yep. only measure. And I remember being in college and just going, uh, like, the fullness, and I'll put this whole quote in the show notes, but the fullness of this idea that that's the journey. And how do we sit with that or how do we get comfortable with it? Because I think so many of us want to turn away from the idea that dying is the end of the journey for us here, at least in our present human state. So I don't know that I have any secrets, but I think that there are a couple of lies out there. Mm -hmm. And one of them is that it's dangerous to think about dying. It's scary to think about dying. This comes from when you're five years old, because when you're five, six, seven, eight years old, the mindset is that if I think about a bad thing, that might make it happen. And somehow, as American adults, we never got rid of that as far as when it comes to our own dying. Yeah. So I think a big part of it is fear. And the fear, I don't think, is often of the, well, I don't know what the average 30-year-old fears if they're not thinking about it. I do know what people fear as they're approaching the end of their lives. And it's usually, I fear pain, I fear loneliness, I fear 
sitting in a poopy diaper, I fear undignity. Yeah. The how do we sit with the fact that we're dying? You do that emotionally. Yeah. So as people are listening to to this, perhaps maybe I could suggest just think for a moment about your belly button. And if you're not sure about it, go look in the mirror. For some of us, we haven't seen it in a while, but our belly buttons are there as a permanent reminder of how we got here. That everybody with a belly button was born. That's the only way to get here. And your belly button is a reminder every day when you get out of the shower and you see yourself in the mirror that you will die. And I would suggest to your listeners that maybe the next time they do that, to look at that in the mirror, maybe pick the lint out if you have to, but to remember what that is telling you and then pay attention to how that feels. And if that feels sad, then experience that sadness and think about what is this sadness telling me? What would I be sad about? If that's frightening, then think about what am I afraid of here? Yeah. And start from there. One thing that I found profoundly helpful, and, and this is used by a lot of hospice counselors and spiritual care people, having, I included in my book, is an exercise in which that places a healthy person, or maybe not so healthy, whoever the person is, in the role of the terminally ill patient and gradually helps them experience the progressive losses that happen as one gets ill and dies. Because one thing that happens in death is that you lose everything. And that is something, we none of us have died, but we all have lost things. So those are these little, little deaths that we experience every day. And to just be with them for a minute and find out this isn't so bad, you know, because I'm convinced if we experience some of the fear and shock and anger now, it'll be a whole lot easier because we've been down this road a little bit before. And I know this doesn't sound horribly joyful, but I'm talking about, <laughs> you know, being in touch with yourself, with who you are. Yeah. And that can lead to tremendous joy, I believe. Yeah, I fully agree. As you were talking about that, I remember another idea too by Wayne Dyer where, and I don't think he was the one that came up with it. When we start to fight the idea of our own mortality, it's really the ego that gets kicked up of, you know, this isn't going to end or that somehow the ego could control, of course, in, in the, the psychology version of the ego, but like <laughs> that sometimes it wants to control our outcomes. So thank you for that exercise as well. It's the unknown that's really the most fearful maybe that is true death. that is true yeah to that same thread maybe the best next question is why is it that we put the idea of dying and death as such an an other thing like it, we we don't want it close but why is that perpetuated or why don't we handle it now in real time <laughs> If I knew that real answer, I would probably be in Stockholm next year when they hand out the, the good prizes. But, well, I can't go anyway. I'd have to go in quarantine for 14 days since I come from the U.S. But what was I going to say? Oh, I think you hit on something when you talked about ego. And I think Americans are probably the worst at this because this is who we are. 
We are the pioneers who blazed the trail. We conquered the continent. This is the American myth. Some people call the American exceptionalism, but I don't want to go down that road. But that we believe somehow that we can control our destiny. This is who we are. And that's true as a people. That is also true as us as individuals. And those are the people we admire that we learned about in school or the people that overcame and were able to control. But they all died. And so we seem to think that somehow we can control this. When I'm driving around town and I see the billboards for the various uh, cancer centers or hospitals, is all this, we are here to, we can cure your heart disease, we can cure your cancer, we can cure your kidney disease, we can cure your with this and that and the other thing. We have the specialty center for multiple sclerosis or ALS or whatever. And the implication is that you can cure death, but that doesn't happen. Nobody could cure death. For people with the um, Christian religious belief, I occasionally ask them, so what happened to Lazarus? If you remember the story of, of Lazarus who died, and the answer is, well, Jesus raised him from the dead. And no, the answer to what happened to Lazarus is he died. Yeah. Unfortunately, he had to do it twice, but this is just reality. And I think that it's much more healthy to take that American autonomy, pioneer spirit, and take control of your own death that way. And you mm -hmm. can only do that by being honest about it and knowing that it's going to happen and say, this is what I want it to be like, and then doing something about it. I like that very much. I had relatives that, you know, crossed across the country in a covered wagon. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. as you said that, I could kind of almost sense the courageous thing to do is to face this as we would any other adventure. Exactly. <laughs> maybe it's not a great, I mean, maybe it is a great adventure. Who, who knows what the end is, but how do we tap into the courage of the conqueror or whoever that, I don't know, person is that we think of when we think of the American that can do anything and this might be the next great, <laughs> the next great thing to embrace. Yes. And I've seen an amazing number of people do this astoundingly well, even though they never really got started until they had a week to live because they harnessed all the, you know, everything they had, whether that was their relationships or, or whatever, and created probably with their family's health, help and experience that was just very healing and very joyful. But just imagine how much better we could do it if, when, if we work on it, when we actually have some energy and some time to think about it. Yeah. Well, and I mean, we talked a little bit and the, the audience knows, so 20 years of project management is, is what's behind me, but I always feel better when I have a plan of how am I going to do this thing, you know, regardless of what the thing is. And I think the idea, while there's, it seems a little frightening to put a plan in place about what do I want for my own end and my own mm -hmm. end journey here. How do you approach that? Is there a way now if somebody's wondering what that looks like, how does one enter into that in a compassionate way for themselves? Yeah. I mean, part of it is, Perhaps a one way to start is a little bit of the checkoff to-do list. So do you have a will made out? Do you have an estate plan? Okay, well, that's kind of easy because, I mean, that's not terribly threatening. Maybe prepay your funeral. Okay, that gets a little scarier. Do you have your, a living will made out or an, a durable power of attorney? Do you have your advanced directives in place? In every state and union, these are legal and enforceable and cross state lines. 
And they're pretty easy to do. It's better if you think about them a little bit, but if that's too scary, then just fill them out and think about what you would want. Do I want to be that person on the ventilator for a long time in the ICU or not? If I get COVID and end up in the hospital next week on a ventilator, do I want to be there alone for the next month until the rest of my body gives out or until I get a little bit stronger and can go to a nursing home and be alone there? Or do I not want to do that and make that decision now and then execute those directives? I think one thing along the way is also just to pay attention. Pay attention to what it feels like if you go to a funeral. I mean, I know that's something everybody loves to do every, every day, but whatever's going on there, pay attention to how you feel. If you're bored, well, they're usually not bored. You usually find somebody to laugh at, if nothing else. But if you feel sad, what makes you feel sad? If you feel like this isn't right, this is not who this person is, then pay attention to that and think, well, who am I and how would I want to be remembered? And use those emotions to inform your, um, your thinking along the way. Yeah, I think that's super helpful. And it, you bring up COVID. And I mean, it, it's hard because I think now all of us maybe are considering something that hadn't even been present in our lives so much, even what, nine, 10 months ago, that right. there could be something right now that we unfortunately get and that maybe we, it is a good time to think about it when we're healthy and we can put some energy towards those thoughts. You know, it is, it is true that, that thinking about it and planning it is great. There's no guarantees. I mean, you know, the drunk driver may change your plans. You know, if you drive in the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time, when there's a gang war going on, you might have a change in plans. That doesn't say you shouldn't think about it anyway. Let me go somewhere. I know that this will not be the date when people are listening to this, but we're recording this on September 11th. And September 11th taught me a little something. It taught me a lot of things, but it taught me a little something about the good dying. And that is that if you think about the passengers in the planes or somebody sitting in their office in the, in the, in the towers seeing it happen, when you think about what happened in the aftermath where anybody who knew anybody in New York was trying to get in touch with them to be sure they were okay, anybody who was in New York who was trying to get a hold of somebody else to say, I'm okay or I'm not okay, or can you believe what we're going through? And we found out that the people in the plane often were having that same experience, either trying to connect with somebody else, or if nobody else to connect with that person in the next seat, to know that the two of us, we are gonna die very soon, but can we at least be together? Yeah. In this. Because I think the tragedy of dying is dying alone and in fear. And I'm not saying you, that people weren't scared out of their minds. I can't imagine what that was like. But if you don't have to be alone in it, that is just so gigantic. Yeah. Thank you. And there was, I mean, one of my cousins was at school in Washington, D.C., and it was that same thing of how do we make sure he's all right? I live in California. 
and how do we have a connection there with somebody that's so dear to us? Because we, I mean, both for ourselves and for them, we want to know they're there and they're alive or can we comfort them in some way? So yeah, it's such a, a hardwired experience for all of us. In speaking of that, I think it also kind of turns the corner a little bit on what does either planning for or what does dying with ease, what does it look like? How can we craft that or find ways to make it happen for someone if we're looking at that in our own lives with someone we love? Yes, I think number one, if it's someone that you love and you're working with, then you mentioned it before, to be present with and listen and, and find out who this person is. If you are that person, I'm going to bring up something that was published 25 years ago by uh, Ira Bayak uh, in his book, uh, Dying Well, where he identified the tasks of what it takes to have that ease uh, or that good death, as it were. And he identified that as five different things one needed to say. And they were, I love you. I forgive you. Please forgive me. Thank you. And goodbye. And if one thinks about, if I knew what that I were going to die in two weeks, who would I need to say those things to and then do it? That creates a tremendous healing. But what really tells me is do that anyway. If you got those things that need to be said to somebody, say them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's great to have two weeks of healing, but wouldn't it be even greater to have 40 years of healing? Now, that's easy for me to say, but I'm not real good at this, but I'm trying right. to do at least. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know my mom, I mean, she likes to say, give flowers to the living. And yes. that's, that's a little bit of what that strikes me as is like, yeah. how do I build that foundation and, and keep relationships open and easy now instead of waiting until maybe there's something that would prompt me to reach out. Yeah, it's also super interesting. So next week on the show, Molly McLean Noterer, she she runs a concierge service that helps people find, you know, either housing or care or whatever for senior parents and or for themselves if they need it. But she even talks about that presence of she and her company will ask questions of people and family will look at them and be like, wait, how did you know this about them? Like, how did you know that about my mom? I didn't even know. And she's like, we just asked some questions. Just like, ask the question. Yeah, just ask <laughs> and be present and listen really well. And you learn so much. I feel like another question in there, is there a way to bring joy into that knowledge that either we're, we know we will die or joy in the now as we you know experience life, but also also holding at the same time this idea that, yes, and I will die. Like, I feel like that's kind of, there's a pull there of how do we do that? I don't know if you have any thoughts on it or not. I know what dying people have taught me. Mm. That's how I know anything about this. And I have heard over and over and over again that people who are learning how to die are astounded because they realize, I get it now. This is how to live. This is how to live, to pay attention to honesty, risk, be vulnerable, to pay attention to the relationships, to ask to to figure out who I am and what are my priorities and to think about what legacy do I want to leave? Because all of those things, I think, are tremendous sources of joy to know that, yes, you can have tremendous joy while you're breaking down and crying at been in so many conversations with 
weeping and wailing and laughing all at the same time that are sessions of such joy, whether there's somebody recording a video for the grandchild that's going to be born or seeing the, the strange son that, you know, left home 30 years ago or just me finding out something about my dad, you know, a, a couple days before he died. That's amazing joy. And I think that, I think we mentioned that really the opposite of joy here is fear and the to embrace as best you can. If you know you're going to die, there's no changing that. I often use the old bank robber thing. Nobody gets out of here alive. There's just one way out. And if one can accept that, then you can find the joy that happens at least up till that point. I don't know about after, but at least until that point, it can be there. Yes. Yeah. There's definitely something about the generations and being able to connect with your family in a new and maybe more authentic way or more uh, stronger way. That is really beautiful, especially when we just kind of let go of the rest and focus on what's really important right now. Yeah. So powerful. You said you've learned a lot from people. Are there any interesting stories or moments of distinct inspiration that you want to share about someone who is passing away or grappling with their own death? Well, I won't include any of the stories that have, that are in my book. I've, I've got several, I've sure, got several yeah. in there because that's where the meaning happens. So let me go back to, well, I guess I was probably in college here. I haven't, I haven't done this story in a while, so I can think it through. But this is my Aunt Mildred, who had breast cancer. I never knew anything about that. I always just knew she carried her arm in a sling because it was big and swollen, and I didn't realize what that was about until, until later. But anyway, and we had a, had a connection. She must have seen something in me because she bought me a car when I was uh, like a sophomore in college, and we connected on a spiritual level at that point, we would spend time reading scripture and praying together and things. As she was getting closer to the end of her life, I learned lots of things from her. I learned about pain relief and perhaps this, when this became a passion because her doctor wouldn't prescribe the medicines. And so I had an, another uncle who's a pathologist who wrote her prescriptions for Dilaudid because he could and nobody else would do it. I remember the last time I was with her, I don't remember what she, what we were talking about, but she asked me to read something, and it was from the scriptures where it is described the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and new earth coming down from heaven, and there being no more pain and no more crying. And she was weeping, and I Told me a while to figure out this. I thought, well, we're sad. This is the sad stuff. She's dying, and I realized what she was telling me is that, from her standpoint, what she was going through was exciting, and she was ready to go home. And that image and that experience taught me a great deal. Now I have all kinds of other intellectual understandings of what happens at that time, and I have a whole lot more doubts about what's on the other side. But that doesn't make it less real. This Just the being with someone who is able to risk and be honest and cry is, I think, one of the most 
it's it's been an honor each time it's been my privilege to do that yeah thank you very much for sharing that story and i can see how that yeah so formational and so foundational for you but also to see it i don't know in such a, an intimate way with someone who you love so much and being so impactful to you thank you so i went to yale divinity school and they had pastoral counseling the reason i i literally took pastoral counseling was because I didn't know what to say to people when they they said they'd lost someone or that maybe they were dying. You know, I, I don't know that <laughs> I don't know that I know the answer still, but I think the answer is is like you're saying you don't have to know what to say, but to allow yourself to be present for them and to be really vulnerable and allow the emotions to flow if they're there and just be with that person as personally as you can. That maybe is the answer that I'm I'm garnering from what you just said as well. I think it's exactly right. And I don't want to go too far down the pastoral counseling role, <laughs> but okay. if you go back to your divinity school, one of my favorite, favorite scenes, favorite lines, and it's so little, it's in the book of Job, when Job is, for those who are familiar with the story, well, it's not, it's either way, um, <laughs> who is, everything is taken from him, and then he is... Um, afflicted with this horrible physical disease, and his friends come to counsel him. And most of the book is this conversation of them saying the wrong thing and him saying the wrong thing and, and not getting anywhere. But there's this great line at the very beginning of that, because when his friends got there, for seven days, they sat with him around, they sat with him and didn't say anything, because they saw how much he was suffering. And that's the answer, is to be with and honor the person. And when they're ready to talk, then you, you do it. And that's tough if you're the clinical pastor or the chaplain in the hospital and you've got to see 37 people that day. It's tough if they, if they have to wait, but that is the secret, yes. The bumper sticker thing is, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's a good bumper sticker. Yeah. Oh, and Job. What a book. I'm a big fan. Uh, people probably know, but I'm a big fan of the Old Testament as far as things go. And thank you. Yeah. I don't think I even realized that that was a little nugget in there. But it's a it's little right. nugget there. Yeah. It's right. <laughs> thank you. One of the things that I'm kind of holding space for on the show this season is how do we, and I think this is a great question for you, is how do we sit with what I'm, I know that people call the messy middle, meaning we're in the midst of something right now with COVID and I live in California and the fires are crazy. And how do we, you know, I don't know, how do we find joy or how have you found joy? Maybe you have an example of someone that's sitting in the midst of something and where do they find joy in that? Job might also be. He might be. He might be. Oh my, oh, I'm having trouble coming up with, with a, a great example here, but I understand the question yeah. because this being in the middle, this being in the, the midst of not, of not knowing. Yeah, it's like the wilderness. I mean, I don't, I don't if yeah. you're busy thinking on it, I don't mean to interrupt. <laughs> no, no, go right, go right, go right. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> like, right. it is like, uh, I'll even use the Hebrew of, you know, it's like Hamid bar, it's the middle. It's like, we can't see, we're past the 40 days where we started out on a great journey and we can't yet see the promised land or whatever the end of it is. And what do we do here and now in this space? Yes. Well, that, so the being present with yourself is another key. 
I do think that one thing I've learned from the dying is that that the healing of relationships can bring tremendous peace and tremendous joy, and that's relationships with the other, relationships perhaps with the greater or the transcendent, but also the relationship with oneself. And I think that this is one thing that at least COVID is forcing me to do more of, and that is, is to just be with myself. And whether that's through one's spiritual practice or mindfulness practice, journaling, whatever, to learn a bit more who I am and to find a little joy there. Without knowing what's going to happen, it's tough. It's tough. One thing, though, that the dying thing, that dealing with one's mortality does to relieve that is if one has, is able to face and perhaps at least come to grips with, if not to celebrate, one's own mortality, having dealt with that, that's the worst thing that can happen to you. And if that's already taken care of, then everything else gets just a little easier. That doesn't help when I watch the news, or that doesn't help when, when, when my wife and I finally realize, okay, we got to get out of the house, or you got to get out of the house. But yeah, I'm not giving a whole lot of wisdom here, Paula. No, I think you, I think you really have. I mean, I love the, even the basis of the relationships with the other, the transcendent and the self, like what? Yeah, that just blew my mind. And the idea then that when we do know ourselves better and how we are, what is the ultimate fear? I think you're right. It does pull everything back a notch. Like when I'm not so afraid of what happens when I die, I mean, I can hold space for it, strangely, and I think many of us are finding this to be true. I can hold space for the very odd things that are unfolding and that I would never have guessed mm-hmm. would have happened in this year. So I, I think you hit it. That's amazing. It's, it's a big question. It's a weird one. <laughs> but it's really fascinating because I don't know. I mean, it, it sounds like you also like the Bible. It's, it really is the heart of the matter of what happens when anyone, Jesus or the tribes, go out for the 40 days. Because who are they sitting with if not themselves? So... I feel like this is kind of maybe this generation's example of that. That's good. That's, that's good. I like that very much. I like that very much. Thank you. If somebody wants to find your book or find out more about how to take a look at dying with ease or embracing their own mortality, where can they find more or how can they work with you? You know, I'm not the only resource out there. Thank goodness. There's lots of tremendous, tremendous people who've written things. But me, dying with ease... If you kind of look at that for at any of the at your local bookstore, it'll be released on October 20th, or you can pre-order from any of the big boy websites. Or if you just want to connect with me, the best would be through my website. It's uh, drjeffspeece.com. And there's stuff about my book. My, that's where my blog is. There's the connect page, which uh, gets emails to me. So I'd be delighted to connect with anybody. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. And I will link up to that in the show notes. And well, and the last thing that I ask everyone is what are three ways that you can think of to jumpstart joy in your life, in the world, or in other people's lives? Be who you are. Of course, that means that you got to find who you are. This is like Boy Scouts. You do, you do your good deed for the day. Do something good for someone else because that's a tremendous piece of joy. And read a new book that you never thought, thought you would pick up. Try something different. If you don't read a book, then watch a show that you never would have watched before and get a new perspective on life. 
I fully agree. And go pick up Dying with Ease. <laughs> would be yeah. the other one. Absolutely. Absolutely. It won't be a long read. It's not a long read. Yeah. It, it was, it's a good one. I've enjoyed the parts of it that I've read. It's really good. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much, Dr. Spies, for coming on today. It's been a real treat to speak with you. And you also, Paula. Keep up the wonderful work that you're doing. Ah, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Spies. It was such a treat to have you on the show. And I want to thank you for your transparency and for really sharing some deeply personal things on the show. It is such a treat, and I feel so honored to have gotten to meet you. Thank you so much for writing such an amazing book. If you all are interested in finding out more about his book, Dying with Ease, it was released just a couple of days ago, October 20th. And you can find the links to that in the show notes for this episode, which are at jumpstartyourjoy.com forward slash episode 268. And while you're there, you can find links to the other things that we talked about. And you can sign up for that newsletter, which is three joyful things that come out every Thursday. And next week on the show, I have Megan Gallagher joining me. Megan was diagnosed with anxiety as a teenager, and she's coming on to talk about what you can do if you are feeling that maybe you have anxiety. And she's also talking about what to look for if maybe you have children that you are worried are suffering from anxiety as well. I hope you'll come on back for that conversation. And until then, I hope that your days are filled with so much joy.